Bill Gates made his name and fortune at Microsoft, but over more than 25 years in philanthropy, he became a leader in the worldwide fight against disease. Then the pandemic hit. Ever since, he has worked at the center of the global response, coordinating solutions with health officials and drug developers, and donating more than $350 million with his wife Melinda through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Since it launched in 2000, the foundation has donated more than $50 billion to reducing poverty, advancing medical research, and expanding access to life-saving drugs. In this episode of Influencers, Bill Gates is here to talk about how long it will take to contain the virus and what it means for the economic recovery and whether life will ever get back to normal. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Sherwer, and welcome to Influencers, and welcome to our guest, Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and co-founder and former CEO of Microsoft. Bill, great to see you. Great to talk with you. So it's been about four months now, Bill, since coronavirus was widely recognized as spreading throughout the United States. We're still seeing cases increase in half of the states here. How would you assess where we are right now fighting the coronavirus? Well, this has been a huge tragedy. Uh, the health costs, the economic costs are you know, so gigantic, hundreds of thousands of lives, trillions of dollars. And so we need to, to stop this thing. We need to stop it in the United States. We need to stop it globally. Uh, the only positive thing out of this is that the pace of innovation uh, you know, the way our foundation is working with the private sector to create uh, therapeutics and vaccines, uh, that's moving at record speed. And that's, you know, that's what gives us hope that uh, we can get the death rate down uh, with better therapeutics. Uh, even by the end of the year, many new, new therapeutics will be out. And then uh, during 2021, we should be able to manufacture a lot of vaccines. And, and that vaccine a key goal is to stop the transmission, to get the immunity levels up so that you get almost no almost no uh, infection going on whatsoever. Yeah, you predicted recently that this current surge in the coronavirus virus will drive up the death rate. Um, how bad do you think things will get and when do you think that would turn around? Our peak death rate was uh, well over 2,000 a day. The the doctors have learned uh, to use the ventilator less, to use oxygen earlier. Uh, you have remdesivir that's an antiviral uh, from Gilead. We're you know, trying to get that to uh, be reformulated so it's even easier to use. Uh, you have dexamethasone, which is an immune system modulator that a study we funded in the UK has shown. So there's the, the risk of death has gone down almost a factor two because of these treatment understandings. Uh, but, you know, as we get into the fall and people are more indoors, if we haven't cut the infection uh, going into that, uh, we could get back up uh, to that 2,000 a day. You've said that serious mistakes were made in handling this virus, this pandemic here in the United States. What was the biggest mistake? 
Well, even today, uh, people talk about the testing number, but you know, people should know how incompetent it is that we reimburse for a test where you don't get the results within 24 hours. You need to prioritize the tests so that you're getting the results back. You shouldn't reimburse at all for a delayed test. So the US is more blind to who should be quarantined themselves than any country in the world. And it's ironic because we have more of these PCR machines, we spend more money on them. And yet because the CDC wasn't allowed to prioritize who gets tested and the states have a hard time doing that, we are allowing the majority of tests to be essentially wasted. That delay, uh, you know, where they made it harder for the commercial providers uh, to get their tests approved, they didn't let them do the testing, they didn't do community testing, uh, that, those March mistakes led to that first gigantic uh, problem that we had. And in contrast, people like South Korea got to the commercial test providers and uh, were able to have a very modest epidemic. If you were in charge right now, Bill, maybe even the president of the United States, what would you do? Well, you know, trying to denigrate Dr. Fauci probably isn't the best uh, approach. You want the experts to get the airtime, you know, let them talk about, uh, you know, what drug trials have worked, which ones haven't. Don't, you know, uh, mislead people on those things. And, you know, the US CDC is a very capable organization, the best in the world. You know, Dr. Fauci and I talk on a regular basis about this innovation pipeline and how our foundation and NIH are funding uh, both a first wave of vaccines and then uh, a second uh, wave of vaccines. And so the capacity to do this right exists in the country. You just build a website, put the CDC's name on it, and it will prioritize who, who should get tested. You get the message about masks to be a, you know, kind of bar bipartisan, let's protect uh, other people uh, type message. And then you engage in the complex discussion about which things it's beneficial to reopen, like, you know, perhaps kids under 15, uh, whereas, you know, schools for older kids in communities with, uh, lots of uh, infection, sadly, you probably aren't gonna be able to uh, do in person. Should, you mentioned masks, should masks be nationally mandated, Bill? Well, the downside to wearing a mask is so low that, I mean, I don't, I can't understand why, you know, it's, it's even a controversy at all. The mask is cheap, it's easy to wear, it has no negative effects. If you're going outside your house, you put on a mask because you'll end up getting close to people. And we know this is not a coughing disease, just talking uh, can expel the virus. Do you think about things like the um, bills in Congress in terms of the relief, the stimulus package? Or is that kind of the stuff that you, you weigh in on or have you thought about how that should go? Well, the expertise of our foundation is more around uh, the disease tools themselves. And so, yes, there are elements of these supplemental uh, 
allocations that are very, very important to us, how we fund the therapeutics and the vaccines, including not just the United States. We're trying to get 1% of the, the, the bill that's under discussion now to go to buy vaccines for the developing countries, because not only would that save lives and have this great humanitarian and strategic benefit in terms of US leadership, it's also the only thing that will stop the disease from coming back to our country. And so the idea that you know, 1% uh, you know, gives you, shows that the US cares. Yes, we funded a lot of R&D, but we haven't funded the procurement for these poor countries, which historically in every global health thing, whether it's smallpox or polio or HIV or Ebola, the US is there not just in a selfish way, uh, funding its own factories, but also helping out the entire world. And so that's a very compelling case. And so I am every day talking to people in government, uh, people at drug companies, trying to make sure that we get money for the entire world. Let's drill down to that a little bit. I mean, how would you prioritize then who gets the vaccine? And let's just say you've got Moderna over here. We were talking about J&J. If we're lucky, there'll be a couple of them. Uh, maybe eight months, nine months from now. Do you prioritize things in the United States by risk group? And then how do you disseminate globally, Bill? Well, the only solution to this constrained supply is to have massive manufacturing capability. I mean, if you're going to vaccinate 80% of the planet with two doses that may be necessary, that's over 10 billion doses of a vaccine. And to make that even in, uh, you know, say in a year, that would be 20 times more than any vaccine production ever. And so what we're looking at is no matter who invents the vaccine, you know, say AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, where there are other factories around the world that could be brought up to speed to make that. So, you know, get factories in India, factories in Europe, not just the ones that the U.S. has been involved with that are in the United States. And so the companies that are doing this, uh, you know, with the global mindset uh, and who say, OK, we're not trying to uh, profit on this, they're engaging with us on uh, this whole production plan. Even so, you will have shortages, but, uh, you know, we're, we're able to fund those factories at risk because uh, we can move move very, very quickly. And so that, you know, I feel good that those plans are coming into place. We'll want to uh, go for health workers first. Uh, you know, anybody who has to mix around people, people who work at nursing homes. Uh, the vaccine has two good things. One is that it should prevent transmission and the other is it should prevent you from getting sick. And understanding exactly how well any of these vaccine constructs do that, that's what we're trialing. The first vaccine that gets approved may only be 50% effective. And so we'll still need to go, uh, you know, we need eventually to get one that's cheap, high volume, and about 90% effective. Should the pharma companies be able to profit off of this bill? Well, if you've taken money from, you know, US, BARDA, or others, Hopefully they put terms in those contracts uh, so that the pricing is is reasonable. There are one or two companies that have, like Pfizer, who've chosen to fund it themselves. And so 
they put out the R&D and, and they did a purchase option for the U.S. So it's a little different in that case. Definitely for the poorest countries in the world, always for medicines, they uh, should get just the marginal cost of manufacture, no matter whose who's it is. So in, in the case of the developing countries, nobody should try and make money. That would make pharma look really bad. You know, I'm hoping that the great innovative skills that pharma's showing here, uh, that they behave in a way that their reputation is better after the pandemic than it is going in. Bill, for those people who don't know, could you explain a little bit about exactly how the foundation has been working to fight coronavirus? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the expertise on how you deal with infectious disease that is not in the private sector is at our foundation because uh, you know, malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, these uh, huge killers uh, that are, are only modestly in the rich countries now, but are, are still a main um, reason why people die in the, in the developing countries, that's our regular activity. And so, uh, you know, understanding vaccine costs and factories and trials, uh, you know, is our deep expertise. And we spend billions of years, billions of dollars a year um, working on these new tools. When the this respiratory disease uh, caused by coronavirus came along, you know, we shifted our expert our activities to focus on this uh, because you know it's hurting the health systems everywhere. And uh, so, you know, we're we're working on therapeutics, we're working on the vaccines. Um, you know, it's because we're not going to use the marketplace here. It's an imperative. Uh, to accelerate this research, even, you know, not based on how much money people are going to make, our ability to evaluate which vaccine looks promising and tell countries, okay, please fund this factory. Uh, you know, we're kind of in a central role in terms of the depth that we understand the the biology and these these new tools. Have you ever given any thought to the fact that you're the person, maybe one of the people, but certainly a key person who recognized early on the power of the PC and the PC revolution. And you're also one of the people who recognized how devastating these pandemics could be. Have you ever thought about that? And is there any connection between those two massive epiphanies, perhaps? Well, my career has been about innovation. And you know, Melinda and I uh, picked global health as the biggest single thing the foundation works on. And that gave me the exposure to say, wow, respiratory diseases, human to human transmitted, when people are traveling around so much, could be worse than 100 years ago when we had the big flu pandemic. So I spoke out about that. Uh, I wish I had been wrong. Uh, you know, this is nothing but bad. This is not like I told you so type thing because we could have taken the warning from myself and other health experts and been better prepared and avoided 90% of this damage. Uh, so the only good thing here is that we will prepare for the next one. That is the ability to scale up diagnostics and therapeutics and vaccines. We will get that right. And the science, which is what always draws me in, whether it's computer software or 
uh, biology, the science is improving so quickly uh, that you know by backing the right teams, being willing to take risk, we will come out with uh, a set of tools to make sure this doesn't happen again. You're so engaged. I mean, did you ever think about becoming a scientist or a doctor when you were younger? Well, I love all of science. And in my Microsoft days, uh, you know, I was so uh, uh, engaged in running Microsoft that I didn't get to stay up to date on what was going on with genetics or a lot of the other sciences. You know, since I uh, retired in 2008, I've been able to you know, look broadly. And of course, the foundation work gives me access to some incredibly bright people and teams that we come back who are doing, you know, just phenomenal work uh, with the goal of, of saving lives. So, you know, I've gotten to have two super interesting careers that are, you know, 80% alike in terms of working with innovators and looking out into the future in terms of what can have a, a dramatic impact. You mentioned talking to all kinds of high-profile people, um, great minds, et cetera. I, I know you talked to Warren Buffett a fair amount. What do you guys talk about when it comes to COVID-19 and the current situation, Bill? Yeah, actually, Warren and I are talking on a more regular basis than ever because the policy issues, uh, the economic issues, uh, you know, what this means for various companies, you know, just talking with Warren about, okay, furniture sales are actually at a record high, but, you know, railroad shipments are 20% below their peak. You know, the economic situation, you know, overall, it's pretty tough, but it's it's complex to say, okay, which kind of businesses will survive? Why is the stock market, you know, at the level that it's at? Why are interest rates uh, where they are? And so Warren and I find the world fascinating and there's, you know, a lot going on that we're trying to puzzle out. Okay, you know, what can we do to help or where is this headed? He told me in March, Bill, that you said to him that you were not sure that the summer would make this virus go away. And you were right, it seems. Why did you think that? Well, the U.S. opened up while infection rates were still going up. This, the summer is helpful. High temperature reduces force of infection. People spend more time outdoors. Uh, the fall, if we didn't have these new innovations coming or you know, more people uh, adhering to the face mask regulations, the fall could be very tough. And part of the irony is that it's the communities that haven't had it badly who are going to be most at risk in the fall. And, you know, so we saw in the spring, a lot of cities were saying, well, we're not New York. Uh, and then, you know, even as that rate was creeping up, they opened up. So, you know, the U.S. Uh, sadly is not taking this seriously. Um, the fall could be tough, mostly in new places. And then, of course, we have the entire world uh, where there's a lot of places. South America's tough today, but Africa, the numbers keep going up. Uh, you know, thank goodness uh, that we have the innovation coming because otherwise uh, the eventual uh, damage, you know, would go on for over five years. Yeah, and one place we need help still is testing. I mean, Quest just this week said they're 
actually falling behind or not catching up to that lag that you spoke of. Why is that? What can we do there quickly? Well, it's insane. You shouldn't pay uh, anyone for a test where you have the results that it takes longer than 48 hours. The whole point of the test is to let you know that you need to isolate yourself so you don't infect other people. Once you test positive, your days of infection are actually, unfortunately, a few days probably before you go to get tested, and then that three or four days afterwards. And so there is zero value to a delayed test. You know, you can write an apology note to all the people you saw during that time, but it, and the, the idea that we're not at the federal level outraged by the waste of money and the inequitable allocation of our testing, which is the simplest thing uh, about this whole thing. We have more PCR machines than any country in the world. And you know, to get the supplies, get the prioritization, we've shown now that you can use a swab that you just put at the tip of the nose. Uh, and you know, we got the FDA to approve it. There's still a lot of places using that one where they uh, the worker who has to get exposed jams it into the back of your throat. So it's been so slow. You know, the conversations with, um, you know, CDC, right. they say, hey, you know, that's up at the White House level. And then you don't have uh, the experts there being being listened to. 17 players and staff of Major League Baseball's Miami Marlins have tested positive for COVID-19 in recent days. Should the league suspend or, or shut down the season even? Well, I'm I'm not an expert on that. I'm the you know the one area I'm really trying to make sure that the data is available has to do with the choices people make on schools. Uh, you know, the idea that they're not gonna have fans, you know, all these sports are trying to do things in a safe way. And you know, I I so I I don't know uh, what trade-offs are involved there. Uh, you know, in the, wor the worst thing about infection is if it gets to elderly people. And so anyone, you know, if you're in a multi-generational household or uh, you really have to behave in a way that you're not uh, connecting to the elderly, which is why the death rate's gone up over the last few months because so many young people got infected and then uh, it spread up in age. But is it fair, do you think, that we're testing all these pro athletes while tests are so hard to come by in the rest of the it, country? It shouldn't. If we, we would just use our testing capacity properly, uh, that would be okay. And, and the testing capacity will go up. There's a lot of new machines. Uh, you know, there's a test called the lateral flow test that some people will be coming out with. Uh, you know, so we're working with a lot of people, including the getting that swab out in the community. So you can just go to a community center or the pharmacy and get that swab and give yourself the test and then put it in the plastic bag and send it in. That avoids the delay of you know getting the test sent to you or having to drive uh, somewhere or go to the doctor's office where you might expose somebody. So the innovation on the testing side, you know, there's a roadmap there uh, but it's it's been slow to uh, get attention. But what about these conspiracy theories? There, there's the there, and you're the subject of them. That you've used this 
uh, pandemic to uh, attempt to implant tracking devices in people. Does it bother you that this stuff is out there, particularly when you're working so hard to eradicate COVID-19? Well, certainly they, it looks like conspiracy theories, you know, they, they're so, these lies travel faster than the truth, uh, you know, particularly in the age of social media. The fact that our foundation is involved in vaccines and it has to do with saving lives, that's true. They just invert it to say that somehow, you know, we're we're not trying to save lives. Uh, you know, our, instead of giving money, we're trying to make money. And, you know, that's, it's unfortunate, particularly if it means people are reluctant to take the vaccine, if it means they don't trust this message about face masks uh, because they think the people giving them advice are, uh, you know, corrupt in some way. I mean, the two most attacked people in this phase have been myself and Dr. Fauci. And, you know, Dr. Fauci's just telling us the truth. Uh, you know, some days he's allowed to tell the truth. Some days uh, he doesn't get contradicted, uh, you know, by his leadership. So it, it, this is a communications exercise and so far, uh, the U.S. doesn't get a, a very high grade, and that could mean uh, that, you know, seeking out therapies or willingness to use the vaccine will make this disease last longer. I mean, you're seeing this stuff on social media. Just this week, there's a video by people who are purportedly doctors saying that you shouldn't wear masks and uh, suggesting you use hydroxychloroquine. Um, and it got just tons of views on Facebook and YouTube. Should these companies be taken to task for that? I mean, should, and should they continue, for instance, to get protection by Section 230? Yeah, the changing 230, I'm, I don't think people have thought through what that leads to. Uh, but Are you against I, that then? Well, the idea of trying to create liability for any untrue thing, uh, you know, you have to decide would would you still be able to have that type of forum? Uh, in terms of this outrageous, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine anti-mask thing, it got it spread so fast that even though eventually the uh, social media people stopped it. It was so famous that now people are still seeking it out. And, you know, so they their ability to stop things before they become widespread, uh, I think they, they probably should improve that. I don't think it's easy because it spread so quickly. I mean, that thing uh, was fairly new and now we have 14 million views and, uh, you can't find it directly on those services, but everybody's sending the link around because it's still out there on the internet. And that one is, I mean, this hydroxychloroquine thing, this is nutty stuff. I mean, we're, we're supposed to be a developed country that, you know, uses science. Oh my God. It's, uh, I, it's, it is really hard to believe that that's what's being retweeted. Are you frustrated by uh, Tony Fauci's, the, the, his boss's leadership? And I, I think you've been reluctant to criticize President Trump by name. And why is that? Um, 
you know, anything that encourages the executive branch to come around as opposed to, you know, pugilistically fight back. Uh, we're all in this together. You know, people of both parties are sick and dying uh, and being hurt economically. So, and we have, you know, everybody involved has made mistakes. We didn't know that masks were such a big deal. Uh, our foundation didn't, Dr. Fauci didn't. In fact, in the early days, we wanted to save the mask capacity for the health workers. And so it's fair to say that was an honest mistake. Um, you know, we actually understand why hydroxychloroquine in the test tube looked effective, but the cells that were used are not the same as human cells. So that's why that got so confused, you know, and so now, you know, we were pursuing other things and there's lots of good uh, therapeutics that will work that are coming along. And, you know, so we want to not uh, push away the leadership that, you know, should enable uh, the positive truth to get out. So just, you know, making a fight out of it, uh, I, I, I give Dr. Fauci a lot of credit. He just uh, rolls with the punches uh, and, you know, tries to get it out. Uh, you know, we touch base with him on a regular basis because the U.S. government, our foundation, are the two biggest funders of this, these new interventions. And, and that is the hopeful part of this whole thing, that actually that's the one thing the U.S. has been the best at. Other governments aren't funding uh, research and development on new tools as at the same way the U.S. is. Now we're encouraging them to do so, but uh, they've been a bit slower. You know, Google just announced that they wouldn't be having people back to the offices until next July. Is this going to really change the way we think of office work forever, for a long time? What's your take on that? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about that. I I am surprised that, you know, nobody's gone into our foundation offices uh, since early March uh, you know, Microsoft's offices, which are in this huge campus, uh, you know, are empty. And yet for certain types of work, the productivity is not dramatically reduced. Now, I don't think we'll stay at that extreme. We want, you know, you to meet new employees and sit and talk with each other. But, you know, do you need to come in five days a week for a full day? I think people's minds have been opened about less travel, maybe less time in the office, setting your home up so you have a space that you're not uh, interfering with the other members of the household so you can concentrate. You know, I, I think that will be quite different. How far different companies will go, uh, you know, is, is, is open-ended. Uh, but yes, uh, it's now possible uh, to do a lot of jobs remotely. A lot of those employees are gonna move to some part of the country you know, because they know not until July are they expected to, to show up. Last question, Bill. You talk to all kinds of people. Um, who gives you the most hope that we're going to be able to get out of this at some point? You mentioned Tony Fauci. What other people um, do you find inspiring or just are doing great work? Well, the private sector companies, a lot of them have diverted their talent onto this work. And that's uh, fantastic. You know, a group we work with at Oxford, uh, 
uh, Adrian Hill and his team, they, you know, are contributing to this. It, the, uh, you know, Trevor Mundell runs our global health stuff and, you know, he, he's just day and night, you know, trying to accelerate the work here. It's great to see these teams coming together. And it's almost kind of a warlike situation where you think, hey, time is of an essence. Uh, you know, anyone we call, you know, is likely to respond. You know, we need your expertise on how to make antibodies quickly. We need uh, more glass vials, you know, for six billion vaccines. That, uh, all these deep capacities uh, being used where it's not, you know, a profit-driven thing. I'm I'm quite impressed with that. There'll be a great story to tell. Not everybody's participating perfectly, but uh, the private sector overall uh, and the boundary between academia and the private sector and the speed now, it it's really wonderful. And, you know, that's where we're going to get some, some great tools, even a few um, well before the end of the year. Oh, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. All right, we're going to leave it at that. Bill Gates, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, great talking to you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.